Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I believe that congratulations are in order. Oh my God. I, what, this, what, what are you setting me up for? It's obviously something bad. You, sir, have cracked the top 100 of the Edu Influencer <laughs> list. Oh, that's right. Uh, I put 96 candles on a cake for myself uh, the other day and, and blew those out. Yeah, very, very well, exciting. It- it is kind of a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I guess so. Uh, uh-huh. it, it's well, you know, I think of David Labrie's line, right? That um, everybody likes to criticize rankings unless you come out looking good in them. And as somebody who has, you know, <laughs> ma- made a small name for himself, I won't say I've made a name for myself anywhere outside of maybe our podcast, uh, criticizing rankings uh, and talking about how ineffective they are at really capturing the complexity of the world or anything that we care about, then turning around and saying like, hey, everybody, top 100 right here uh, would be a little bit too ironic, at least for this hour in the morning. So should we go to greatscholars.org and yeah. like like your fan page? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, make sure that you uh I think there's a there's a fan rating function there. Um you can throw some stars at me. You can write a narrative comment uh about how influential you think I am. Yeah, that would be really fabulous. Well, speaking of education influence, we have a graduate student research contest ongoing, and this is actually the last episode we're going to do before the deadline closes. So, Jack, I have wrangled another of our former winners to make the case for why current grad students should enter our contest. Hello, my name is Melissa Arnold-Lyon, or Mimi for short, and I was a runner-up for the graduate student research contest And that was an incredibly positive experience for me. I think that every graduate student that's studying education policy, education politics, history of ed, should be considering entering the graduate student research contest because it's really good visibility for your work. I've since found out that my podcast episode is on two syllabi, so that's pretty exciting to to have my work out there for students to be listening to. And I even made a few new academic friends at Brown and elsewhere who listened to the podcast and then reached out to me to say how much they liked it or um, wanted to talk further about it. Jennifer and Jack are really generous with their time and the questions that they give so that you have the opportunity to really discuss your work in detail And then they are able to highlight the most compelling stuff in a way that helps you learn how to share your research to the public and policymakers in a way that is digestible and honest, but also interesting. Jennifer and Jack want to help amplify you, and they literally have a microphone, which was pretty unique in my own experience as a grad student. Finally, The Graduate Student Research Contest is so easy to enter. It's low cost, high reward. What's not to love? 
Oh, so good hearing Mimi Lyons there. I'm flashing back to the episode that we did with her and Adam Kirk Edgerton. Um, all of these episodes that we've done with Graduate Student Research Contest winners are awesome. I can't wait to record uh, with this year's winner and runner-up, as we always do. Uh, if you want to enter this, uh, details are available on our website, haveyouheardpodcast.com backslash contest, or if you just go to the website, I'm sure you can figure it out. So, Jack, we did get some requests that we devote an episode to just sort of unpacking the current madness around schools and... I'm not sure our audience will be particularly surprised to find out that we decline those requests. Instead, we are seeking <laughs> refuge in history, and not just any history, living history. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it, it's uh, it's too traumatizing to talk about what's playing out right now in the world. The world is a, is a dark place at the moment, but... Um, in moments like this, I always find it really useful to hear from somebody who takes the long view. Um, we're going to be talking with Larry Cuban, who is a historian, but also a policy analyst, a deeply experienced classroom educator and district leader. Um, Larry has a kind of even keel about him that always makes me feel like everything's going to be okay in the end. Well, I just loved having the opportunity to talk to him. But I wonder, Jack, there are probably people in our listening audience who aren't familiar with Larry and his work, or they just know his name. Tell us a little bit more about him. And I, I know you're going to want to slip in there that the two of you met at a particular institution. <laughs> I met Larry when I was a first-year PhD student. He was an emeritus professor. So, you know, he really could have just said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But he took me under his wing. And I think that's really characteristic of Larry as a scholar uh, and as a mentor. Um, he, as I alluded to earlier, uh, was a classroom teacher, was a district superintendent. Um, he taught at Stanford for a number of years uh, and worked side by side with one of the great historians of education, another deeply humane scholar, David Tyak. Um, and both of them uh, worked on a book called Tinkering Toward Utopia, which um, is a book that is still assigned in uh, education uh, graduate programs and even undergrad programs. Um, Larry's written about a wide range of topics about the uptake of technology in the classroom or the failure of technology rather to change classroom practice. He's written about um, the divide between research and practice. He's written about uh, you know, curricular changes over time, about the failure of reform uh, to change the basic structure and substance of schooling. He's really um, broadly intellectually interested and employs um, you know, a, a range of methodologies to do his work. Just a really smart, thoughtful person. I'm so glad he's going to be joining us. Well, Jack, you mentioned that he was a mentor of yours while you were at Stanford. I'm sure everyone noticed how you managed to slip that factoid in again. <laughs> well, I could not resist having the opportunity to ask Larry about what young Jack Schneider was like as a student. Take a listen. That's a nice opening question, Jennifer. Jack and I from uh, hit it off immediately. Uh, Jack was David Labrie's student, as I recall, and I was on his committee. So Jack and I hit it off, very inquiring, unrelenting. I enjoyed Jack as a, a doctoral student. So, Jack, how did you like that answer? 
I liked it better than I think you liked it. I think you were hoping that Larry would say that I was, you know, like a slacker or a ne'er-do-well or that I would roller skate into class and promptly fall asleep. But, but that's not what you got, is it, Jennifer? Well, we were thrilled to get a chance to talk to one of Jack's heroes, and now mine. First, a little about Larry Cuban's brand new book. It's called Confessions of a School Reformer, and it takes stock of the three great reform waves in American history, the Progressive Era, the Civil Rights Era, and our most recent era of reform, the push to tether schools ever more tightly to the needs and goals of businesses. In other words, there's really never been a time when some kind of reform wasn't underway. It is endless, and it won't stop. When I really looked at this, uh, you know, reform is part of America. Remember, the uh, the Puritans came over. They were dissenters. They looked for a city upon a hill. So, I mean, the reform is in the bloodstream, and it always has been. For me, it's important to keep that in mind, that this is not new. So, reforming institutions, schools being one of them, is a habit among Americans. Criticizing reform misses the point that it's part of who we are. The idea of improving is just in uh, the DNA of Americans. And if the story of reform is as old as America, so is something else that you're no doubt familiar with, resistance to reform. No one likes to be reformed. Everyone wants to be a reformer, but as long as they're not the object of reform. It happens in families. You know, we ought to change this. We ought to improve this and everything. And it's fine if it's uh, if you're doing it to someone else. But being the object of reform has not been a mantle that uh, school people have easily worn. It just hasn't been. Uh, and it's true of everything in, uh, as far as I read American history, that's been the case. No one likes to be the object of reform but people do like to reform others. So we've got a story as old as America, one that's in our bloodstream, our DNA. But as Larry surveys these waves of reform with his keen historian's eye, he discerns something that might feel counterintuitive if you've been on the receiving end of these reforms. Classroom practice hasn't actually changed very much. Reform waves are constant, but the ocean bed the seabed, the bottom, there's a couple ripples there and everything. And if you then uh, go to the metaphor of the school, me, I automatically go to the teacher. So the reform waves go across the United States, go across schooling, but does it royal the classroom practice? Sometimes, but mostly not. So that's the way that I see uh, the world. And uh, the reforms is, a, uh, is almost in perpetuity, uh, given uh, the DNA that I've talked about. Reform waves have not necessarily altered what happens in the classroom. It has altered what happens in schools. I distinguish the, the unit of reform, the classroom, the school, the district, the state. If you look at those governance units, then there have been changes at some of them and less change at other levels. We should talk at some point, change toward what? Because reform is, everyone talks about reform, but reform toward what? And that gets into the area of goals, and people's goals vary a great deal. 
So if the school is a seabed that's barely rippling after wave upon wave of reform, then why does it feel like there's sand flying everywhere? See what I did there with the metaphor? Well, Larry says that policy elites, with the aid of the media, are often able to make what's actually a jumble of policy aims seem much more coherent than they really are. And that's part of the pattern, too. There's always been disagreement about goals of reform. Always. I can't think of a time, even during the height of the progressive movement, the civil rights movement, and the business-driven movement to reform uh, schools, there has always been a jumble of factions and everything. Policy elites uh, often set the agendas, and those agendas of school reform are often shaped by the larger societal forces at work. And by that, I simply mean that the progressive movement swept across America government as well as schools. The civil rights movement produced legislation as it uh, also affected segregation and desegregation. And the movement in uh, school reform led by business leaders in the 80s and since moved us toward accountability and standards-based curriculum. So this has been patterns, but it doesn't mean that every teacher was on board, every school was on board, or every district was on board. There are 13,000 plus school districts, over 100,000 schools, and then uh, you have, what, 3 million teachers? So I'm saying there's great diversity and churn all the time. By now, you're getting a pretty good intro into what the world looks like through the eyes of Dr. Larry Cuban. But there's one more element we need to dwell upon. The reason why these great waves of reform haven't actually produced that much, well, it has a lot to do with teachers. Teachers are often insulated from the policy talk because they can shut the classroom door. They simply have that flexibility and autonomy to do that, which means that even in a school where a principal is a hot rod for certain school reforms, that principal who has 30 teachers in an elementary school will see great diversity among his or her teachers just over what he or she wants the teachers to do, because teachers have the capacity to close that door and then follow what they think is most important for the students in front of them. If you accept that as a reality in American schooling, and then think of the 3 million teachers, you see an enormous constancy of what occurs in classrooms between teachers and kids, because teachers are authorized to be in control of 25 kids. And so you have a kind of similarity across American schools that a lot of people don't really understand. All they remember their student days and everything, but there's a great constancy in teaching over time. It doesn't remain the same. There are always incremental changes that occur, but there is a constancy and a fluidity in teaching. And I find that that a lot of people simply do not understand that. You know, I can imagine some people listening to this saying, well, yeah, I think that was true historically, that teachers could close the door, but the standards-based accountability movement 
um, was very much about trying to pry open the classroom. And the value added movement was about, you know, taking that logic to an extreme end. And now some of this, you know, we could classify it as anti-CRT backlash against teachers. Again, there's an effort to try to pry open that classroom door by saying, hey, parents, if you don't like what's happening, you can sue the teacher. There have been very strong efforts to do what uh, you are suggesting may be occurring right now. And I can't think of a reform, Jack, over the last hundred years, including uh, the past decade, where that classroom door has been pried open and teaching practice has has really altered. I, I just can't think of any, but I'm open to suggestions. The talk about that occurring outstrips, again, what actually occurs. Policies may be adopted, but again, the teachers still have a certain amount of autonomy because we still have age-graded schools. An age-graded school means that there are a bunch of classrooms arrayed along corridors that have doors. Open space schooling, which was a big deal in the 60s and 70s, and open space schools were built. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, where eventually walls were put up and doors were affixed to these open spaces. And that's a powerful kind of thing that shows the social beliefs of what people want in what people think is a real, in quote mark, air quotes, a real school. And I think people underestimate the power of those beliefs that come from the larger society and also from educators themselves. Earlier, Jack mentioned Larry Cuban's blog. It's excellent. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Well, Larry wrote a piece for his blog not that long ago about why it's time for us to give up on the age-old American belief that schools are the solution to poverty. So why can't we acknowledge this and move on? For one thing, we keep forgetting what's happened before. As Jack well knows, uh, this goes back again to the colonial period. Many of the uh, elite colonials, uh, the planters, I mean, they set up private academies of schools. They believe that schooling and education, well before Thomas Jefferson articulated the importance of, the pub- of having public schools, there was a constant belief that education could reform the individual and then the society. So I wish I could have more metaphors and it's in the bloodstream or in the DNA, but it's there and it's historical. And because most Americans are ahistorical, I guess a part of me means that in a condescending tone, but I really don't want to be condescending. That's the nature of American society, that today is today and yesterday was forget yesterday. If you know that this has been a trend, it's been deeply embedded in the American experience that schools can reform individuals and institutions and society, it ain't going away. Larry, I want to talk a little bit about a topic that you've also done lots of work on, and that's technology in education. You know, I think people would love to hear you just talk a little bit about ed tech as a reform device and why it's so successful at getting into place and why it's 
uh, often the opposite of successful in terms of making a difference in teaching and learning. When I uh, came to Stanford from the superintendency in the early 80s, I had been a superintendent, so I was in a lot of classrooms, and I saw the beginnings of technology entering, computers. One of the books that I wrote when I just got to Stanford was called Teachers and Machines. And because, as you are, uh, I've been trained as a historian, I wanted to look at early uses of technology in schools. So I traced it back to everything, to Thomas Edison, something called the Stereopticon, where you would look at three-dimensional photos, to the radio, to instructional television. That was a very helpful book for me to write because it, it got me to see how technology had been part and parcel of uh, any kind of savior of poor education. And so generation after generation, because they don't really look back to previous generations, come up with the, the most current technology and say, oh, if we would only have a mass adoption of this, things would improve. So that's a historical trend, as far as I can tell, and it continues to go on. The title of Larry's book is Confessions of a School Reformer, and that's important because you might get the impression from listening to him talk that he's against reform, and you would be wrong. In his book and in his vast body of work, Larry isn't arguing against reform, but making the case for us to understand it through the lens of history. You know, it's easy to get cynical, but I don't I don't want to be cynical. This is the way education has been framed. Uh, in America for centuries. And it's important to know that, not to simply give the finger to the most current reform. It's to understand that there's something in the American psyche and American society where things have to change and they have to change for the better. And the innovation of the moment is a thing we ought to do, as opposed to look what works. What has been going on? What has been constant? And why has it been constant? Those questions aren't asked. One of the things that I'm finding so enjoyable about this is that on the one hand, you're possessed of deep insights about the history of American education. But on the other hand, because of the nature of Americans, you're doomed to irrelevance. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't have said it. You said it unkindly, but it's so true. <laughs> now, you're no doubt wondering how I could possibly follow up my insult slash insight. Well, with a compliment, of course. I told Larry that one of the things that so amazes me about his writing is how well it's held up over time, whether it's essays like Making Schools Businesslike Again, or his book with David Tyack, Tinkering Towards Utopia. The insights seem as relevant today as they were decades ago. So I wanted to know if there's anything he's gotten wrong. And surprise, there is actually something. Yeah, uh, I just wrote a piece on digital textbooks. I got that wrong. I thought that that was going to take off, and it didn't. Uh, there are still, you know, digital textbooks are around. All the hype that surrounded it a decade or more ago is still there, but it didn't take off. So, you know, I've been wrong on some of those kinds of things and other things, too. 
But I think the points that David and I made in tinkering and that uh, Jack has made in uh, a number of his books about the constancy of reform and how hard it is to alter what goes on in schools and classrooms, I think they still hold up, as far as I can tell. Back to Larry's book, part of what makes it such a compelling read is that he's not just giving us a sweeping overview of the history of these successive waves of school reform. He's also a participant. When we meet young Larry, he's attending school in Pennsylvania during the Progressive Era. Then he goes on to become a teacher during the dawning civil rights era of reform, something that shaped him profoundly. I was a high school teacher for 14 years. I taught history, history and social studies. And I taught that in Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh area, in Cleveland, and in Washington, D.C. Then I ran a program to train teachers on site at a high school. Uh, These were returned Peace Corps volunteers who wanted to become teachers in inner city schools. It was called, they were called inner city schools then. I helped train them. And that had an enormous impact on my own thinking, training others how to teach in an actual school setting, not at the university, but at the school. I was trained as a historian, so I began to, I looked at things historically, and that that pushed me an awful lot to think about, well, I can see what's new, but then what's old about the new? Then he went on to run a school district in Arlington, Virginia, just as the standards and accountability reform wave was taking shape. I was there for seven years. That had an enormous impact on my experience. Uh, I came to Stanford after Arlington, and seeing the schools as a system was very, very important to my own thinking about school reform, because I saw it first as a teacher when I thought to change a curriculum would alter everything. And I did a lot of uh, new curriculum writing uh, when I was a teacher in the uh, 50s and 60s. But being a superintendent and seeing a system from classroom to school to district and the politics of all of that had an enormous impact on my thinking. And going to Stanford gave me a chance to write about that historically. Those experiences in and around classrooms, combined with his historian's eye, all combined to give Larry a perspective that's not just unusual, but deeply necessary. What has struck me in all of the research that I've done and all the reading and the writing that I've done is that how incredibly hard it is to alter classroom practice. You can change district governance. You can change, you can put in new structures. You can even change the funding of schools, which is absolutely essential. But does any of that alter how teachers teach after they close the door? And I have found that it's been minimal at best. Now, does that mean that teaching never changes? No. There have been incremental changes in teaching practice over the last century. And I document that and repeatedly and others have documented it. So teaching does change incrementally, but on a different clock than the clock that reformers use. And the only way to understand that is to see things over time. And a lot of people don't do that. A few like us do, and I'm glad of that. It's hard to get that across to a lot of people because we're all stuck in the moment. 
That was Larry Cuban. He's an emeritus professor at Stanford and the author of a great new book called Confessions of a School Reformer. I highly recommend it. And Jack and I will be right back to reflect on some of Larry's insights about school reform post-pandemic and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Democrats, and school closures. To join us in the weeds, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So Larry's book, Confessions of a School Reformer, which I cannot recommend highly enough, wraps up in the present moment, which is really interesting. And he's grappling with this question, well, what reform movement, what are we going to see next? And how is the pandemic going to impact this? And he had an observation that I thought was so interesting. So I'm actually going to read just a couple of sentences from the book. The COVID-19 catastrophe, as all disasters do, offered many would-be reformers the chance to make deep changes when schools turned on a dime in mandating remote instruction. But no such political coalition emerged advocating deep changes in schooling to remove longstanding inequalities or even rework the current standards-based reforms that have dominated public schools for nearly four decades. And I thought that that was so interesting because it is like I just came upon um, this week, I remembered that when Andrew Cuomo used to do those press conferences in the early days of the pandemic, he actually announced a reimagining school commission. And, you know, that's been completely lost to the annals of history, in part, you know, because of exactly what Larry Cuban was describing. There was no coherent coalition that emerged in the wake of the pandemic to say, here's what we're going to do to schools now. Instead, I think you see what we kind of teased out in the weeds last time, which is that a lot of the Reforms that seem discredited or finally weakening are now regaining momentum. I think the reason for that is that we're between reform paradigms right now. We haven't yet said goodbye to the neoliberal consensus that embraced some modified form of choice through charters largely uh, that focused really on quantitative measurement that emphasized standards-based accountability and top-down governance, and that was somewhat antagonistic or maybe very antagonistic towards labor and specifically teachers. We haven't said goodbye to that. That's still with us, even though it's on the wane, even though the consensus that undergirded it has now unraveled. But we haven't firmly moved into an era in which you know, the abiding thinking in education policy is that embodied by somebody like Betsy DeVos or like New Hampshire's Frank Edelblut, um, where the vision is really about unmaking the public education system, about uh, a system run directly through the market, controlled by parental choice, operating uh, through individual consumerism, and really agnostic about what the process or product of schooling is. And we're not there yet uh, either. And so because we're kind of between movements, um, there's also a lot of fighting and disagreement, and even people just not even being able to see uh, 
the same way that other people are seeing present policy issues. Um, I think that's what explains the absence of a real concerted push, at least an effective push, for major change during a crisis. Um, as Larry knows uh, from many historical cases, crisis brings opportunity for people. The destabilization creates a moment where if somebody's really well organized, and I shouldn't say somebody, right, it would always be a coalition. If they're well organized, it's an opportunity to really usher in sweeping change, something that wouldn't be possible in ordinary times. And the fact that we didn't really see that during the pandemic or haven't seen it since the pandemic isn't over, um, I think really speaks to the fact that we're really between these two different kinds of eras that we'll be able to very clearly define in the future. Well, speaking of the reemergence of a hostility to labor and teachers, I don't know if you've heard, Jack, but Democrats are now getting very worried about the possibility of school closures and how it might impact their electoral fortunes. And I thought that would be a perfect topic for us to discuss in the weeds. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, just as it's like a horror movie, just as the Democratic Party was beginning to embrace labor again and beginning to embrace educators again, um, they fear that uh, union opposition to what they view as unsafe working conditions could lead to massive school closures and Democrats would be associated with that. And the taint of that would follow them right into the ballot box. So happy to discuss that in the weeds. Well, if you'd like to follow us right into the weeds, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. If you throw a couple of dollars our way each month, you get things like a custom reading list for each episode and you just get the satisfaction of supporting our cool little independent education policy podcast. Jack, <laughs> anything else listeners can do to support the show? Well, if you feel like the weeds are not your place, you'd like to stay on the well-worn garden path, you know, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Uh, and there are still lots of ways that you can support the show. Let people know that you're listening. You can do so on Twitter. Tag the show in that. That's at Have You Heard Pod. Um, you know, send people your favorite episode or the latest episode. You can get it wherever you listen to podcasts or from our SoundCloud page or send people directly to the podcast webpage, haveyouheardpodcast.com. Um, we've got a book out there that you can point people to, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. It's in, I think, most libraries at this point. Uh, it's got to be. It's extremely popular. Very, very popular. Um, and uh, I don't know, what else do I usually say? Uh, I, I don't know. Be, 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 be good to each other. <laughs> Times are hard. Be nice. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>